Welcome, Pudding People, to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. I am your host, Ken Seymour, with your other host, Richard Geiger. Welcome, everyone. We are ecstatic to have you back with us today. We have a fantastic episode, a lot of really neat things to talk about. First, out of the box, we are going to be talking with Cass Botts, Executive Director of the Indiana Recovery Alliance, and then we will talk just a little bit in in regards to one of my favorite subjects, all of the types of movies that I wish they would make with the characters they have not touched yet. Uh, and we will even finish up at the very end talking a little more about the history of comic movies. Uh, we're in 2007, and we'll be talking just a little bit about Ghost Rider. But on to the good stuff. Cass, how you doing? Hey, I'm great. I'm glad to be back on the show. We are always happy to have you here. Um, so some things have changed since the last time that you were on, and you have this really interesting and um, useful uh, position, and I thought it would sound or it would be really great to, to know a little more about it. Yeah, do you want me to just kind of launch into like what the organization is? Yes, definitely so, because mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people are real familiar with it, or at least maybe I'm the yeah. only one. Cool. So yeah, we're the Indiana Recovery Alliance. And what it is is a nonprofit organization that's based out of Bloomington, Indiana. Um, so it's a statewide grassroots organization that is dedicated to implementing harm reduction interventions, public health strategies, uh, strategies drug policy transformation, and justice reform in Indiana. And actually, it goes beyond Indiana. We do work all throughout the Midwest. So basically, I just say um, in my elevator pitch, we're a harm reduction organization, and harm reduction is a set of practical strategies that are meant to help reduce any of the negative consequences that might be associated with drug use, right? Okay. So this can often be a very sensitive topic for a lot of people. Um, What do you find to be one of the more challenging aspects of your position in getting your message to where it needs to be? Yeah, I mean... I think at this point, we're all aware that there's an overdose crisis. We talk about the opioid epidemic, and it's something that touches a lot of our lives, either tangentially or directly. Um, We have loved ones, or we're just aware of it in our communities. But it's really a taboo subject, and drug use and people struggling with substance use disorder is just very stigmatized. So I think the challenge is getting people to kind of like get over that fear of, oh, this is a touchy thing that has like a lot of story around it that can be, you know, based in some truth, based in some fear and myth, and actually get to the heart of like what is going on in our communities and how we can address the real things that are happening around us, such as overdose crisis. So I know at one point, at least, there was a real, there was a real attempt to address the conversation in a way that um, drug use or addiction specifically would be addressed more as a, a disease rather than a behavioral correction kind of a problem. Is that still kind of the conversation that's happening or has it evolved since that point? Yeah, I think more and more, whether or not we're using like a disease model, we're saying that this is totally a public health concern. And a lot of times, like, criminalization and that type of a strategy doesn't actually, over time, um, based on evidence that we have, seem to really address more of the public health needs that are involved. 
So, for example, in Scott County, Indiana, Indiana became nationally known for this HIV outbreak where over 200 people in a town of 4,000 were diagnosed uh, with HIV or living with HIV. That's like a huge problem, and it was largely associated with um, people not having access to um, the way that they were using drugs so that they were having to, like, you know, share implements, and that can lead to transmission of disease. And so this is a public health crisis, but a lot of the ways that we treat those people are really, like, criminal um, and based in the criminal justice system, or what I say, like, the carceral system. So what harm reduction does and what my organization does is say, like, okay, let's look at the public health side of things and how can we make sure that everyone that we interact with knows that they can have strategies put in place to be healthier and safer and stay alive. So your organization probably deals with any, any spectrum of, of harm reduction and help. Do you see more of a trend, let's say the last couple years in what people need the help, like the most help with, or is that, mm-hmm. is it pretty general in, in a sense? Yeah, I mean, we'll help anybody with whatever they come into the room and say that they need help with. So I have a literal, like, physical office location where people come in and they tell us what they need. And that can be uh, having, like, sterile um, supplies or that can be one of the big things that I've noticed is, like, naloxone. Because what we're having is basically an increase in overdoses. So you hear, like, 20-year-old kids are dying all the time. And what's happening is that this really strong synthetic opioid called fentanyl has been kind of like cut into the drug supply. And fentanyl, because it's so strong, has caused a rapid increase in overdose over the past decade. And so one thing my organization does that I think is honestly like really palatable for everybody is save lives by um, giving people access to what's called naloxone, which is the opioid overdose reversal drug. And Ken, that's what you'll see me post on Facebook about a lot. Anybody in Indiana is allowed to have naloxone and administer it as um, an emergency response, as a lay responder. So what I do is I teach people how to use it so that if you run into an overdose or like if you're a family member who loves someone who's at risk of overdose, you can actually know how to save their life because minutes are all it takes for someone to have like oxygen deprivation that leads to lasting brain, brain damage and death. So I think naloxone distribution is one of the main things that we're known for. And we're the largest distributor um, in the state, actually. Do you also train those that are maybe not completely familiar with the signs of what a drug overdose might look like? I mean, it's definitely good to have that with you, but a lot of people may not feel uh, that they would know for sure when they saw an overdose happening. Definitely. Once a month, my organization will have um, these two-hour-long trainings. And what they are is the first 30 minutes, I talk about harm reduction. I talk about the history of the war on drugs, the history of drug use in the United States. And kind of, I just like to give a historical perspective that shows us why we're at where we are today. Because I don't think we can adequately, like, meet our reality without knowing the history of what got us here. So I spend the first 30 minutes doing that, but then the last hour or so is really dedicated to getting people to an understanding of what causes an overdose, what it looks like, how you might identify it when you encounter it, and then if you're carrying naloxone, 
how to respond and actually administer naloxone to that person while you wait for the emergency medical services to arrive. No, I've I've personally seen, uh, and I even took a picture of it just so I could make sure that I was seeing everything right. Um, at, at Target, at the Target pharmacy, there's a sign right there on on the wall for everyone to see, and it's and it's about uh, naloxone, and it's cool. saying it it's available in most states without prescription. Like it's got a description, like a whole thing on there. So it's basically advertising for people to get it. Now, have you? Do you think you see more of that or are you help? I know your organization is helping to contribute to the visibility of that more. But do you think you see more of that in places like Target that you wouldn't maybe think to see it? Yeah, it's definitely becoming something that I see in media. We're on this podcast. I think it's kind of fun to talk about this part of it. I just saw um, Knives Out. Have you all seen that? Yeah, I love that film. Okay, it was amazing, and they actually mentioned the lock zone. Um, I won't give the details of why, but I am seeing the lock zone being mentioned in um, the TV show You on Netflix. Terrible show, in my opinion. Um, no offense to anyone who loves that that might be listening, <laughs> but <laughs> it's more commonly mentioned in the media now, I think, because it is just such a national crisis that people who wouldn't ordinarily have needed exposure to that information now are, um, you know, having it be part of their life in that they, like their neighbor's kid died or something like that. Like I hear more and more people saying, wow, I never would have thought of this until it happened to me or it happened to someone that I care about. Hmm. What's maybe, because there's obviously this huge stigma still attached to, to drug use um, where it's it's not a lot of people don't know how to interpret it, how to respond to it. Um, what is the biggest pushback maybe that you get in your attempt to help from people that maybe have uh, opposing views? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different things that I get. But what really what I find is that just like with lots of other things, like um, – you know, people experiencing homelessness or when you see um, racism at play, there's a lack of empathy and understanding that a real human being is having these troubles. And I think a lot of times we can moralize and distance ourselves and other people. And so what's really happening is a, an inability to like see the, the, the person um, in front of you in their humanness and in their own agency And there's a lot of, like, basically caricaturizing uh, what you think someone who has substance use disorder is like. And so whenever I face these things, what I usually try to do is, like, give my own lived experience. Like, hey, I was a person who struggled with these things. Like, do you really think those things about me? Because I'm standing in front of you right here. And so I think self-disclosure can be really important. Mm -hmm. But mostly it's, yeah, it's like a moralization of the issue rather than realizing, like, no, these are things that are realities based in trauma and social inequalities and people are differently vulnerable to these things. And so they're a reality we have to accept for better or for worse that illicit and illicit drug use is just a part of our world. Um, And instead of like furthering harm by furthering like the trauma and isolation and stigma that someone faces, we can 
choose like love and respect and dignity instead. And that's where I usually come from. And that's where I get people to kind of be able to change their minds when we start talking about the stories of the real people that are involved. So in kind of going down that, that path and helping people in that direction, from the other end, what, what do you think the biggest obstacle from uh, the justice system, and whether that's federally or locally or, you know, state of Indiana, what do you think the biggest obstacle is for a lot of those folks that you're trying to help from the, the justice system? Like I said, they could be maybe even overcome, but they just don't have the resources to overcome. Yeah, I think people need to realize that when someone gets caught up in criminality because of drug use, which is, you know, something that you're doing to your own body, it's really not um, causing harm against others. What ends up happening is someone gets a felony, and then the felony puts them in, like, almost the second social class. I've been reading The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, which I'll recommend to anybody, but... You have trouble finding housing now. And in a college town, like competitive housing, you know, you might be relegated to areas that you weren't particularly uh, interested in, like, living in just because you have this thing on your record that had to do with what you were doing with your own body. And you can have trouble getting jobs. And that can kind of cause people to get into a cycle of, like, homelessness and um, being recriminalized and going back into the system so if people could just understand a little bit more that the impact can be greater than even just the the like jail time that someone initially served um it can be this like spiraling impact that gets someone caught up in um uh, an inescapable um relegation to like basically um being permanently like a lower status citizen in this country anyway. Yeah, I know. I remember seeing a, uh, an article about uh, a gentleman that was incarcerated uh, around California and he was on the, uh, on the group of individuals that was taken out to help fight the fires and he was completely trained and he, he kind of, he wanted to do that as what he was going to do after he got out because he was able to actually help people and he could not be a fireman. <laughs> they, they would yeah. not hire him because of that, yep. that uh, stigma uh, and the laws required it affects voting too. I mean, yep. it's just, um, so, so here's, here's, I, here's maybe where is a sticky point for some, some people and maybe where some advice could be, could be given because I know if you've got a friend or you've got a family member that is currently suffering and you're and you're certain that they're suffering from addiction and you want to help a lot of times the way that people choose to help is not actually helpful what is yeah. what is a path that you would think would be good to be able to give the best kind of support and to be able to do what you need to do as as a as a human being to help this other human being be better. Yeah, I think so there is a myth um of like tough love is what'll help this person and you know kicking them out and um removing their resources, removing their access to resources, like that'll force them to hit their bottom and then once they once they've hit their bottom, they're going to learn that they don't have anybody and they have to get better. And 
you know how sometimes like what sounds like common sense turns out to just like not be how reality actually shakes out. Um, I think we found that that sort of attitude actually like can kill people. And what I try to let families know is that you can absolutely set boundaries to protect your safety, to protect your resources, your money, you know, definitely learn the difference between boundaries and like trying to force someone to hit the lowest point that they possibly can in their life. Cause like, the latter doesn't have to happen. The first is really important. So I tell people to identify harm reduction um, resources in their own communities. In Bloomington, like families will come to us all the time and be like, hey, I can't, I can't with this anymore. And we'll be like, okay, we're here, we're here for you. We're here for you. And we're here for the person that you love who's suffering from substance use disorder. And, you know, my job and my organization is to show that person like as much unconditional love as possible. Um, and we can be a good resource for people when the families feel kind of like spent or tapped out. But I do try to challenge the idea that you have to force someone to hit the lowest point that they can hit in their life. Cause oftentimes that does lead to people being isolated alone and then dying. And so we definitely don't want that. Um, but there are resources in almost any community out there. Um, you just have to know to, you know, how to find them, basically. And I'm happy to, even in other states, people will message me and be like, what do I do? And I will, I'll be able to find, like, what kind of resources exist in Iowa, for example, and point them in that direction. So with this being a nonprofit, uh, tell me a little bit about where the funding comes for this whole organization. I, I know it, it, it can't be easy, but I, I just... So, so the, 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 so that I know, but so the listeners know, Hey, like this is where all the money comes from for this organization. Yeah. I mean, like any nonprofit, we're severely underfunded. We really don't get money from the state. We are contracted out by the health department to do some of their services. So money that goes through the state to them, they give us some of that as part of like the contract. But for the most part, what we're actually getting, it's not coming from people's tax dollars. You know, it's not coming from Indiana, but it's actually coming from private donations, grants that I just find and apply for, um, grants that are specifically related to harm reduction. Usually um, they understand that, like, my organization is exactly who they want to fund. But, you know, relying on grants is hard. We lost a lot of um, grant money this year just based on, it being like one-time program funding that, that like ran out or whatever. And so we're always definitely struggling. Um, and private donations are really important. So if you feel so inclined, um, we do have kind of like donation information on our webpage. Um, but a lot of it's really coming from grants and foundations. Now, do you think as far as that funding goes, kind of, going back and tying back to what we spoke about before, you know, with the stigma that things have and how things are so federally regulated in terms of uh, the class schedule for all these different types of uh, drugs and substances. Do you think that's part of one of the roadblocks? Like if people really understood how this program worked, that the governments would change how the things are funded? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the funding goes to, or historically has gone to more like the criminal justice side of things. That's starting to change um, as the evidence is becoming more and more like positively clear that harm reduction organizations and public health strategies are the way to go. So that's good. But 
you know, what I do, it's, uh, it's not sexy. So a lot of times the donors that we'll get are going to only be people who know from, unfortunately, experience um, a loved one or they themselves have dealt with it. And then in terms of the, like, federal funding or state funding, you know, harm reduction organizations are, are new. They are, I mean, they're not new, but they're, they're kind of, like, within the past decade, like, gaining more and more traction. Um, and they're just not considered as reliable um, a, like, strategy as some of the things that have existed forever, like the criminal justice system. So, yeah, it's something that we struggle with, but we're heading in the right direction. We just have to, um, you know, be able to persuade people with evidence, which (laughs) when it comes to, like, legislators, for example, is not always easy. Well, that kind of leads straight into my next question. It's kind of a two-parter. thinking about the future what do you see for your organization what what do you hope for it to be in the next five ten years and in a corollary fashion um, what do you think or, or what would you hope you would be able to whether it's your organization or everyone concerned with this particular subject as a whole would be able to achieve in terms of legislative change yeah, some of the things that are really difficult in terms of legislation right now are so people who inject drugs, um, they can actually go to syringe services programs in um, nine counties out of 92 in Indiana. Um, and there, there are two issues legislatively. One is that even though they're allowed to go to those programs, they will still be arrested for possessing the, the syringe. And so it's kind of counterintuitive because people are like, wait, what? It's legal for me to go to the program, but it's not legal for me to have this thing. Hmm. So I think the felony arrest for possession of a medical device is problem number one, because that, again, is what I was talking about earlier, like putting people into this system and the cycle of being in the system over and over again. The other problem is some of the legislation around how easy it is for those types of programs to get started up in the first place. And like I said, there are only nine out of 92 counties in Indiana. And many counties in Indiana, like there are eight currently, I believe, that don't have any services that are on watch lists from the CDC um, for being at risk of an, an HIV outbreak like we had in Scott County. And so I think making the programs more accessible and easier to start up legislatively um, would be great. Right now we're fighting even just keeping open the ones we have. The law that makes it legal sunsets in 2022. So it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, they might all just get shut down. So we can't even think about starting new ones up until we deal with that law. And then making sure that, you know, people aren't getting criminalized and having to face incarceration for possessing a medical device What's happening is we're moralizing why they're using that medical device, but it's really um, amazing to me that it's a level six felony on somebody's record. I have a really good friend who had a clean syringe on her, but because of certain circumstances, she was arrested and she now can't finish um, her social work degree. She had one class left and she can't, she can't get back into school because she has a felony on her record. So she has to wait like three more years until she can hopefully get expunged. And it's just been really hard for her. And she's like 
doing amazingly well, but she just like can't get the job that she wants to have to help people because of that thing on her record. So, in instances like this, there's there's often a a either a financial or some other motivating force for somebody to oppose this kind of a thing. I mean, it's usually not just ignorance at that point if there's active opposition. What what is the incentive for denying this legislative change or denying the way to help people become better? That's what's amazing. It actually saves millions of dollars for people to have access to these services rather than to be hospitalized for HIV or hepatitis C, to have to receive liver transplants, to have to be hospitalized for bacterial infections and sepsis and abscesses of their skin. Um, so the programs like mine that are operating and like saving lives while being severely underfunded would totally be saving money if it was like an economic question. Unfortunately, that's just not even persuasive because we're moralizing the issue so much. Sometimes when these programs get shut down at the county council meetings, Bible verses are cited as like a reason against them, which is whatever. Um, but it's not following the evidence and it's not following even what I think a lot of legislators care about, which is like the economic impact as well. Well, you know, it's important to remember that Jesus preaches to love everybody except for the people you don't like. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Separation of church and state. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. All right. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. We have always pledged to try and not <laughs> politicize the show in any way, shape, Neutral. or form. Neutral. Um, but uh, this is this is some really, this can be some really eye-opening information for people. Um, what are, I mean, you mentioned a website. Uh, what's the website that they will go to to find out more information about this? Yep. It's indianarecoveryalliance.org. Excellent. And of course, you're, you mentioned you're on, or at least you mentioned before when we were talking a little bit, uh, <laughs> you, yeah. you, you have a significant uh, presence on social media as well, right? Yeah, people can either follow me or add me personally. I'm Cass Lots, or we have the Indiana Recovery Alliance Facebook page. And that's where we'll post um, event information. If people hear this and live in or around Bloomington, and are interested in coming to one of my naloxone trainings so you can be better prepared for an emergency. Um, you know, we post that on our Facebook page all the time. We have volunteer open events and call-outs for some of the different um, things that we'll be doing in the community besides those trainings as well. So you can give us a follow there on Facebook. Well, thank you so much for coming on and informing us a little bit and showing us a, a, a different perspective on a subject that is so personal to so many. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. It's always great having Cass on. It's uh, She's always got a, a really interesting insight into things, and she's just kind of uh, able to uh, bring a perspective we don't often get on the show. Yes, a well-informed perspective that we really appreciate. You know, it's also really appreciated. Mm, nachos. Nachos and social media. Nothing goes better together. Perfect combo. When I'm eating my nachos with my nacho cheese and jalapenos, I go, hey, let's get on to Facebook or maybe look at Instagram where at 
pudding guys might have something new to say. Or even uh, if you're ready for a, a very short string of characters, uh, getting onto Twitter where we're on the old tweet machine. That's right. At Real Pudding Guys. Uh, our favorite place, of course, is always going to be at uh, Patreon, probably. Because for just $1, not a measly dollar, no, 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 one real dollar, that donation gains a lot of things, right? Those things right now may be small, but those things will grow and they'll grow and they'll grow. That's right. Plant that seed money and out will sprout new equipment or being able to go to uh, one of the conventions where some really interesting people might be at and we'll be able to talk to them and get some interesting conversations or something along those lines. We always really appreciate our patrons and we I, I did it again. I keep calling them patrons. Patrons. You are patron. Patrons. Patrons See, on I, Patreon. Yeah, I, I can't do it. The brain just does not want to cooperate. See, maybe that's what the money can go towards. Vocal coaching. I would become better and speak better, and I would not trip over my words. Uh, no, we just might not have to record it 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> Indeed. Well. You did mention queso. Just yes. an odd question right in the middle of talking about something that we're not going to be talking about ever again. Right. Have you tried the new queso at Chipotle? I have tried the queso at Chipotle, which the, is not queso. The, the, there's new queso. Oh, there's a new queso. Queso blanco. Oh, so is it is it like the old queso in consistency? Mm, I'm going to go with no. Hmm, I it, might have to try it. Then. It's still real cheese, uh, but the other, you're right, was a cheese sauce. This is clo- closer because it's... it's uh, White, like American cheese, and other cheeses, too. So it's more with the consistency that you expect from going to, let's say, uh, Qdoba, like Qdoba yeah. and getting queso there. Because I love the queso from Qdoba. I'll, I'll, I'll love that all day long, which is strange for me to say about anything that's a cheese sauce, because I'm not generally a cheese sauce kind of a person. But I like the, like the queso at Qdoba. Um, what I also like is seeing neat new movies come out each and every year. We were talking about this uh, a couple weeks ago where, you know, DC and Marvel have laid out their timelines of the movies that they're going to be uh, releasing and have some really cool stuff coming up and have kind of this plan going on. But we were talking about maybe some things that aren't being released that we kind of wish would be released, whether it's comic related or not, just characters from comics or books or whatever that has not made it to television or movie that we just really wish would be. I figured I would start this conversation with one of the, one of the favorites that I don't think will ever be made into a movie. Ooh, tell me more. Uh, I can hope maybe possibly a television show, but, um, uh, character favorite of mine, uh, Moon Knight. Mm, but there is talk there. There going to be, there is going to be a Moon Knight series. Really? I had not heard yet. That is the, in the future plan for Disney Plus. Oh, that that makes me so so terribly happy just because it's that is one of my favorite characters. I mean, like uh, a lot of people just call it Marvel's Batman, but that's not exactly really what he is. Um, there are certain similarities for sure, but um, yeah, there's more to that character. There's a lot. And it's it's it's, a, it's an interesting psychological study. Uh, of, of a person. That's why I don't think you could really do it in a movie. 
it would it would turn out pretty badly. You've got to be able to dissect. He's he's got multiple personalities, so it's just oh, I hope they do that right. Yeah, that's so. We're all what we're seeing now is this first generation of those Marvel Disney Plus things coming around, right? So we're gonna see uh, the Winter Soldier one in the fall, right? WandaVision. WandaVision. Um, I can't remember what's... Ne- oh, the uh, Loki. Mm-hmm. Those are like the first ones. But after that, there's a, there's the She-Hulk. Right. There is Moon Knight. And there is one other one that I can't think of right now. But yes, it is in the works. Yeah. TV show, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to a lot of that. I've, I, I find it... I always find it interesting in the speculation on these shows because there's always so much that goes into it. And we've talked about it a little bit on a variety of different movies where I'll say, hey, I didn't know anything about this director going into this film. And so I couldn't get really a read on it. Or this this director only did comedies <laughs> before he went into whatever film. So I would never have expected that they would have been able to pull something like that off. And there's always this this rampant speculation about the people that are going to be writing these projects or doing these projects, and there's always so much backlash even before things start. I know that I, I saw a little bit of that related to She-Hulk, uh, and I, my reaction is always the same. It's like, you know, just just let it happen. It's had a good track record so far. Well, at least from a Marvel standpoint. They've right. had even like all these little-known directors or maybe not-known directors and so far, they've had, a, like I said, a pretty good run. Well, and, and it's it's really kind of a, it takes a village kind of mentality. It's not just the writers, not just the directors, not just it's everybody with kind of the directives from from Marvel, right, mm-hmm. and from Disney, and that's that's really what makes it what makes it work. I think so. A lot of people not liking certain people. First of all, just give them give them a break. Let them let them try to make something. That works, and it will either work or it won't. But don't complain. What is the purpose of that? Uh, all it does usually is either make yourself miserable or make the people around you miserable. <laughs> yeah, that's just a product of the social media net, uh, time that we live in. Right, maybe so. Well, what's something that you've been wanting to see adapted into uh, a movie or television? Well, okay, so I, I'll preface this by saying that I'm not... Um, I, all, any of the WB DC things I don't watch. I don't have an interest in watching them. I, I really don't. And that may be, I, I can see why a lot of people like them. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to watch them. So that we're talking about Flash. We're talking about Supergirl. We're talking about Green Arrow. Um, the uh, Black Lightning. Uh, Legends of Tomorrow. All those things. Um, now, one of the things that I, in terms of the DC comic book, characters i have a couple things like i like the whole justice league ensemble right um i like the a lot of the characters but probably the least in that group and 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 why i don't really know one of my least favorites is the flash Mm. and in terms of his rogues gallery of bad guys i think they're cool Oh yeah, definitely. I don't, I don't like the Flash character that much, but I like when he interacts with everything else around him. So one of the things that I do like is um, 
a movie that we've already seen, a, a storytelling that we've already seen come to play, um, and that's the the Flashpoint paradox. Right. So in animated form, that's really cool. And one of the reasons that I like that kind of storyline, that film, that the animated one, is Superman's not there. Mm-hmm. Right. That's one of my complaints with the justice with with Superman. As a character in general, is that he's just too powerful? Just too powerful, right? Um, I, someone had patched together a little. If if Avengers were saved by Superman, and it's just like <laughs> he shows up and wipes out everybody, you know, like it's it, it's it's kind of ridiculous in a sense. But in that movie, they've changed the perspective on what could have happened, right? So mm-hmm. he's not he he's not not a factor. He's he's a. Um, Oh, um, he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner. He's a um, for a, a short little segment. He's a MacGuffin mm-hmm. in a sense. Oh, so, yeah. So uh, that's what I like about that. You get a different perspective on Batman, and you get to see some of the other characters in a different light. And I like that to to have that as a movie. I think would be really hard to do. Oh yeah. But to have that as an eight part something would be amazing and there's because there's so many other little you, you have the all the main characters but then you have all the little side characters like it's just uh, to me that's a really cool story incredibly hard to present and it'll never happen but well to that end there's always going to be storylines like that that you're just never going to see like i'd love to see kingdom come made into a film or even a multi-part uh television show just not going to happen right. um it it was a product of of when it came out, and it was the the type of artwork that was surrounding it was just phenomenal, and so that was a lot of what led it. And the storyline was just really good too. But it's it doesn't mesh in the same way. It doesn't have the same kind of um, impact now that it would have then, um, it, because it was a commentary of how things had changed, and we've been enmeshed in this change for so long now. <laughs> that it maybe wouldn't really have the same kind of uh, sting. Uh, but, um, yeah, that that's one that I would have loved. But in order to make that work, you have to preface it with, you have to have a, a successful DC universe first. And that's going to be really hard. To, yeah. Really hard to come by. Yeah, it's it's, it's not, not to the point where that, that's going to work. Um, but... You know, okay. So, what about uh, what about from the DC side? Maybe uh, a character that uh, a character that hasn't been um, hasn't been made into a movie yet, and might be um, have potential to be really interesting. Hawkman. No. Uh, always no. Never. How about never? Uh, Hawkman is such. I know I'm going to alienate a couple people from for saying this. Hawkman is a terrible character. It's just never been interesting. Uh, they tried the closest it got was towards uh, Infinite Crisis, kind of interesting at that point. But that that if that's the closest it gets, yeah, you can leave him. It's it's fine. Um, the Spectre. Spectre. If you could do it as a kind of a supernatural thriller. Mm approach i mean and since dc doesn't really have a universe to speak of and they can take some chances and maybe do something 
Oh, seeing seeing a really good Spectre movie could be so cool. And I, I have been, it has been rumored that maybe somebody became the Spectre in the television show. I'm a year behind <laughs> on the episodes. Mm. So I don't know if that actually happened. But to my, my virgin eyes, uh, I have not seen anything uh, that is Spectre and anything other than animated. And uh, now, which one is the Spectre again? The Spectre is the basically God's vengeance personified. He's got the the all white with the green cloak and hood, and he basically is as powerful as he needs to be to exact vengeance in any particular situation. But he wasn't always handled that way because a lot of his stories in the comics were like detective stories. Hmm. Um, so having having that be the crux of it with kind of a noir feel and then build on that with the fact that there is a juxtaposition and a conflict between the person that the specter inhabits and the specter themselves because they're two distinct personalities and there's a, a sharing of the body and a sharing of purpose and it's uh, it can be so good what what's the one character also from DC who does the same thing? He like inhabits someone's what, body. Dead man. Dead man. Yeah. yeah, he's fun. He's he's a little different. He's more. He can be more humorous at times, and uh, also kind of sometimes detectivey. But uh, he's he's a distinctly uh, distinctly different character, and the power levels are much lower. That lower. could be yeah. could be much more interesting too in that regard. Yeah, the whole Justice League dark that side of things because you've seen a Constantine movie and you've seen sort of yeah you're right not not in the truest sense but a fun movie it was good yeah I enjoyed it uh but in terms of what that character and then um who else is is it Swamp Swamp Thing in there Swamp Thing was made into like a show for like three episodes yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, DC plus yeah whatever that was um and then the Zartana, is she a... Zatanna? Zatanna, yeah. Right. She, I don't think that will ever be made into a show or a, a movie. Just by by sheer, unless they find, they, they would have to write her differently just because of how her powers work. You're not going to have somebody talking backwards for an entire film. Not why. (laughs) (laughs) Well, even that isn't how she would have to talk. Um, And then what's the other, the um, uh, Dr. Fate? That could be really interesting. Uh, Again, another really kind of overpowered character just in the way, depending upon whether you're talking about Golden Age, Silver Age, whatever, he's always stupidly powerful. Um uh, the counterpart to Doctor Strange on the DC side of things. And there's always a, in fact, I think there was even a, um, a the Death Battle channel did a Doctor mm-hmm. Fate versus Doctor Strange, I think. And I disagree with how they came out. They they said Doctor Fate would win that. And I would, I, at least I think they did. It's been a little while since I watched it, but that's, that's a Doctor Strange win. Pretty much 100%. Well, maybe not 100%. More like 70% of the time. <laughs> Uh, so okay one of my and we we touched on it a bit uh, previous one of the previous episodes when we said well we really like the juggernaut we want him presented 
And I, I think any anything in terms of the X-Men universe would be a great side street from the, the current Marvel universe. Right? Because the X-Men, there's just so much. And the Avengers have been touched on so much at this point in time. Right. Right. Um, you know, a, a Fantastic Four, we mentioned like, oh, that'd be cool with like Bullman or like some of the other characters that are fun, but like different. But, you know, in, in terms of if we're going to outer space and the universe surrounding us, that I think a character from the X-Men universe is if they got sucked into the Mojoverse would be really fun to do. A, a, long, a long shot movie? Yeah, like whatever like you take you take a couple of the x-men characters didn't he already die uh that was shatterstar Shatter right right yeah. <laughs> no long shot yet <laughs> but just that, that that character in general and it wouldn't have to be for like so that you know thor ragnarok for example right the that gladiatorial arena was its whole story but they just condensed it into a portion a, an important portion of that movie you could do something like that with the with the Mojo verse, I bet, because that's it's not that deep of a story or character. It's yeah, a big gross thing that wants TV ratings. Well, and I got the perfect casting for Mojo, mm. Jack Black. That would be fun, right? <laughs> he can do he he does goofy well, and he can pull off sinister if he really wants to. Mm-hmm. And that that just that hint of of sinister over the goofy would be like Jim Carrey mask kind of kind of a thing. Um, yeah, I think that'd be good. Yeah, and and I I just I don't know. There's something about that whole relationship, and you know, like the you're pulling in X Men, but there's other the potential for other gladiators from other parts of the universe that we might recognize, right? Right. Like a, or a species that we may recognize. Just the whole, that whole thing to me would be pretty entertaining. You know, a little bit more lighthearted than some of the other serious things that you'd get from an X-Men universe. Yeah, definitely. So that'd be another one I'd like. All right. So I'm going to throw one out for television because uh, I don't think this can be done as a movie. But it's one of my favorite comics, and I think I'm one of the three people that love this comic. And I think I've mentioned it slightly before, maybe in a previous podcast. I'm starting to lose track. But uh, the comic was called uh, The Darkhold Redeemers. Mm-hmm. So and the MCU has not yet really cracked in to the, to, to the supernatural. They've kind of hinted at it a little bit with Thor. They've hinted at it a little bit with Doctor Strange, and that's it. But they're going to be bringing in Blade. And this is straight up Blade territory. In the original Blade films, they tried to make it kind of a biological thing where the vampires came from. But in the comics, they come from the Darkhold. They've had the Darkhold in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., right. but... It's not... Well, I'm, they, and they didn't do enough with it to make it impossible to use it, even use that version uh, as it's been misunderstood by those that had it. They didn't really know what they had in their hands kind of a thing. And it's uh, like, it's it's a book written by an elder demon, basically. And it's filled with just evil. And so the whole comic was, uh, the book's pages are torn out and strewn across the earth and people are getting a hold of them and awful things are happening and they're going around and trying to consolidate all the pages and remove them from 
the people that it's harming and all that sort of stuff. It's, I thought it was just a really fun, it, it would easily lend itself to almost like Friday the 13th, the series kind of a feel or an X-Files kind of a feel. It would be so much fun and it could lend so much to the backbone of, of understanding how the supernatural side of things works in the Marvel universe. I think anything from the super, any of the other realms, the supernatural realms, I think would be a good, they've already had that introduction, but not really, but they have, but not really, you know, that'd be a nice little side street to go along. Oh yeah, definitely. So what's maybe a, a non comic related property that you wish you could see? Mm, well, I was, I was going to say, um, the she are, but, um, Oh. We're going to have to go a different direction because that's comic book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm, non-comic book. That's a great question. Something, does it have to be a book book? It can be any source that has not been translated. Something that hasn't been made, maybe that's been made into a TV show in the yeah, movie? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Hasn't jumped genres yet. I don't know. I'll pass. <laughs> I understand. How How about this? Uh, one of my favorite authors, uh, Piers Anthony, uh, did a series called The Incarnations of Immortality. was never translated to any movie or television show. And it's a really, really fun sci-fi fantasy sort of a thing. And with um, shows like Good Omens and... And uh, the good place, and a variety of other things that tackle um, morality and religious background and things like that that didn't exist really at the time that that set of books was released. I really think that with some updates, um, it could be really, really interesting. So the the whole the whole concept being basically that yes, there is a God, yes, there is a devil. And, you know, angels and demons and all that sort of stuff. But there's magic is real and science. They're in competition to a certain extent. But in order to have everything run, there are incarnations that help kind of guide things along. So uh, death is an actual job. Uh, So is eternity or um, not eternity, but uh, time should say the fates, um, war, um, nature. And people take these jobs over in very specific circumstances. And they keep the jobs until something very specific happens. Um, so like uh, to, to become death, you have to kill the previous death. Except that death is um, invulnerable. So that previous incarnation basically has to want you to kill them. And, and so your job is just to go around the planet and when people die that are really close on the scale of being good or evil, you have to decide where they're going. So you judge their soul and send them to the right place. And it's just, it's really, really interesting the way that, that uh, Piers and Anthony, is, it, it was a fun story. Uh, some of it, uh, like I said, some of it may not have aged terribly well, but um I really enjoyed that series, especially for Love of Evil. That book, out of the group of them, I think was the best by far. And, oh, it's so good. So good. Okay, I've got one. 
Um, this could be two of them. A lot of them, really. But uh, Duke Nukem. Oh, that would be fun. That would be, I think, easy to do if you had the right actor to do it. Um, that you know, if you think about what the Deadpool movies have been, with the kind of the, the humor, we're not we're not talking about fourth wall breaking in a sense because that's not what happens in the Duke Nukem no, games. Not exactly, but that. He, the the crude humor mm-hmm. and then the the gore and action like that's that's Duke Nukem right there. If he were younger, I'd say Adam Baldwin would be a, a good casting for that. Hmm. But it it have to be it have to be someone that had like a body like uh, John Cena, somebody with a little bit of meat. Yes, but then like. John Cena's got a fun, like, personality. Yeah, but it doesn't lend itself to this. No, no. But, yeah, it'd have to be somebody, someone had to put on some LBs in in muscle. Well, it's not just that. It's got to have the right voice, too, because, you know, oh, yeah. Mm, Yeah. The super manly voice. It's just, uh, yeah, most wrestlers don't really have that anymore. Not in the same kind of way, anyway. Um, A lot of them sound very macho but it's over the top so mm-hmm. in in the wrong way in, I guess. in the wrong way yeah so that I, that would be a fun one and then um sticking with the video game lines they, they've done a couple of doom movies mm-hmm. so that would be more of a redo to make it be actually good we should do redos on the next episode i don't get it mm-hmm. <laughs> um the 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 Halo series, I, I thought, has always had really, really good storylines. Oh, yeah. That could work well. And they've done some animated movies on that one, but not a... They were, they were supposed to be. There was supposed to be a live action uh, telling of some some sort of tale that revolved around the Master Chief, and that never came to fruition. So that'd no. be a fun one, too. Yeah, definitely. So with the Duke Nukem thing, I think one of the most fun things that you could do with that film, if they were to ever make it, is you got to have Duke Nukem in the bathroom at some point. And I would love to just see somebody walk by him that knew him. So I was like, why are you always in the bathroom? Because in all of the video games, there was such a a bathroom kind of related joke. I mean, the most recent one was awful, and I'm not going to get into that. But usually you wanted to see your reflection and that was where you could, because that's where the mirrors were. Mm-hmm. And so it's just little things like that. There's always something bathroom related with Duke Nukem. It's an easy joke that they could make. Yes. Yeah, that, that just the whole, and, and like the bad guys and then the shotguns and then, I don't know, all, all the one-liners would be, would just be perfect. Rescuing strippers, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous. They got They kind of have some movies that are a little like that already, but... Uh, yeah. Definitely would have to be R-rated. Yeah, there's there's no way around that one. But, uh, you know, the, these are a lot of good examples of some, some subjects that should be made into a movie. Um, some of them, some things that should have been made into a movie got made and maybe weren't quite as good as we hoped it would be. Um, and we'll probably talk about that next week. Uh, and, and things that need a do-over. 
But along those lines, we're going to finish up our episode talking just a little bit uh, about the history of comic movies. Specifically in 2007, there is a film that some people may think is maybe not quite as good as they wanted it to be. Uh, that would be uh, The Ghost Rider. Subject so nice, we'll talk about it twice. <laughs> so we're just going to go very briefly into this because we don't want to uh, beat a dead motorcycle. Um, I guess it is dead. Right? It transforms, yeah. it's flaming. Something like that. But the uh, director on the film, Mark Stephen Johnson, um, his first directorial thing is Simon Birch, but he's responsible for another film that maybe people wish was a little bit better, being uh, Daredevil in 2003. Um, however, he's actually written some stuff that I enjoyed, like the Grumpy Old Men uh, movies. I enjoyed those. I mean, they're kind of light fare, but had a lot of fun to them. And he was... Uh, he did the story for Christopher Robin in 2018, which I really liked. That was done extraordinarily well. Um, did he also do some of the work on Electra? I, I, I believe he did just a little bit, just just the characters. Also, oh, the most important part. <laughs> but uh, you know, the cast was pretty solid. I mean, what 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 could go wrong with putting Nicolas Cage? <laughs> In the, in the lead role. <laughs> I, that, that's a great question. What could go wrong? Uh, uh, just don't put him with John Travolta and you're good. Yeah, yeah. I, lo- I love Nicolas Cage to death. I will watch pretty much any movie that he's ever in just because it's either going to be really good or it's going to be really bad in the right way. And I'd say this kind of kind of tips towards that direction just a little bit. Yeah, there's definitely worse movies. I mean, you got Donald Logue in it who I love and pretty much anything. And, uh, you've got, um, Peter Fonda doing a turn as Mephistopheles, uh, which I find it interesting that they call him Mephistopheles and not Mephisto because he's Mephisto, not Mephistopheles. You can want to call him the, the full name all you want. And that's, mm, that's one of the problems that I had with the film. It's a minor thing, but it's it's a major character in the comics. And it just seems kind of weird to want to go with that that long name for no particular reason. Uh, a fitting actor for a movie that lends to a motorcycle. You know, uh, it was probably easy for him. <laughs> no? Uh, yeah. um, I'll, I'll give it a... I'll give it a pass. It's at least a D plus or a C minus. Oh, well, you know, it's it's all I had on short notice. Uh, But uh, Eve Mendes is generally pretty solid in most things that she's in. Uh, Maybe her best film was Hitch. Yeah, with uh, Big Willie style. Yeah, or at least that's the one I enjoyed her the most in. Uh, There may be those that would disagree as that being her best film. But Um, gosh, what was the, the first one that she was in? That was with uh, Denzel. Uh, right. Um, I am spacing that hard. Uh, her first film. I think that was her first one. Well, ignoring TV shows and uh, videos and all that sort of stuff, it looks like her first film was My Brother the Pig, 
1999. Mm. I guess the first one that people n- no, noticed nope. her. Night at the Roxbury, 98. Bridesmaid. Interesting. We're thinking of training day. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, have to admit, I don't think I saw that film. <laughs> Reels? Uh, for real. It was one that I always wanted to watch, and I just never got around to. Because mm. I love Denzel Washington, and it's like directly right in the wheelhouse of what I would watch. And I just, mm, That's a good one. I, can, I, I have it on digital video disc, just not uh, Blu-ray. Well, it's been on streaming for a long time. Yeah. I just, again, too many things to do. And I've been doing that side projects just to see how many movies I've watched. And I'm going through and my list is at 1,050-ish at the moment. And I'm not nearly done going through them. Well, if you, if you got just, if you get about two hours, that's a, that's worth it for sure. Yeah. Well, what we would love to know what uh, your opinion is on these sort of things. I know we're kind of cutting short a little bit of the discussion of Ghost Rider, but we're going to talk about it next week more in depth in our other topic. Um, but uh, let us know. Visit us on social media. We've got forums, at least for a little while. We haven't seen a whole lot of uh, response to the forums, so we might shut those down <laughs> sometime coming soon because the only thing that happens is people that are trying to advertise things or uh, assault the website tend to go there and we may just shut that. Just so mean. Yeah, people are awful on the internet sometimes. Weird. Yeah. Or if you have a suggestion, like who should be the actor that would portray Duke Nukem? Right. That's a good one. In fact, I might post that up on social media tomorrow and see what the response is. But uh, until next time, keep watching movies, keep watching TV, rot your brain, and then tell us about it. <laughs>